And just a reminder that on August 27th, we'll be having a 10-year anniversary celebration, and that will include a, a barbecue and, and some other things um, out here, I think, with bounce houses and stuff like that. Um, uh, not for the adults, but, um, uh, but, for, uh, but for the kids, and, and we'll be able to hang out and, and talk. Uh, but we're, our plan is to just celebrate how, how God has been so faithful over the last 10 years, in spite of our, <laughs> our, many, our many problems, our many um, difficulties, we are, um, we are just thanking God that he's allowed us to exist as his church uh, for, this, uh, for this time and this period in Salem, Oregon. And so uh, we've been in Matthew chapter 5, and, and every week over the last, I think it's three weeks, I have intended to be done with this section, and every week I go a little bit longer and a little bit longer, and so I've had to end, and so uh, uh, God willing, uh, today will be the last day in this part of our series, um, but we'll, we'll be continuing the Kingdom of God series through the end of the summer, and then we'll start something new in the fall, uh, but I have really felt like uh, the Kingdom of God has been something that has been incredibly important to me as I've been studying it and learning more about how this integrates with our faith overall. Um, we've talked about this a little bit, but uh, ultimately, in, in years past, what you've seen is you've seen people who've been uh, very heavy on social justice, who uh, tend to have more of a, a liberal uh, sense, uh, perhaps about the, uh, their lives politically as well as religiously, um, ha have been very uh, much advocates of uh, this idea of the kingdom of God. And in, in a large sense, uh, they can oftentimes believe that it is their job or our job to bring in the kingdom of God, to be people um, who are bringing the kingdom of God. We're building it. It's a part of, of who we are. Whereas uh, conservatives on, on many levels, religiously and politically, and in many cases, don't often talk about the kingdom of God. And really, what they, when they think of kingdom of God, they're thinking of heaven, future, God's uh, final fulfillment of his kingdom in the future and what that will look like in heaven. And so they oftentimes believe that uh, the world is going to burn up. Everything here is going to burn up. There's no sense in us trying to make this better, uh, this, uh, you know, this life better. This is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, and it's just it's going down, and so let's not do anything. And, and in fact, you can hear this even today um, in some people's uh, sermons and what they believe in and so forth. But I have been uh, uh, advocating for the idea that the kingdom of God is uh, really, neither one of those, uh, that neither one of those is, is true, but that a real understanding of the kingdom of God brings about an incredible things in our life. And so we've been talking about this theologically. We've been talking about through the, the whole Bible. I believe that the overarching theme over the, the whole Bible in the, in the context of God's glory is his kingdom. He will be glorified through in and through his kingdom being fully and finally established. And as we, as his people, are uh, revealing the kingdom of God as we are showing what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God. Uh, God is glorified in and through that as, as well. But in today's world, right here and right now, oftentimes what we see 
is that our world is, is continually saying to us, it's okay for you to be religious, it's just not okay to tell other people about it. If you proselytize, if you're, if you're trying to tell people about your faith and things like that, like, that doesn't belong here, that's not what you should be doing. And, and, and in fact, our, our world has been vehemently uh, opposed to religion, and it's growing like that. I was talking last week uh, here uh, in, in my, my sermon about this article uh, called Googling for God and how uh, Google search terms for God has, has, has been on the decline over the last several years and how other things are being searched um, that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And so our world, in some senses, is declining in its desire to, to see God, perhaps. And so what we've seen is we see a world that is increasingly becoming hostile to us. And so uh, what we saw there in Matthew chapter 5 in, in uh, the verses just prior to this, it, it says, um, blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous, righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so our uh, viewpoint should be that we want to live as members of the kingdom of God, and that means that Jesus is our king. You might remember if you were here at the beginning of this series that what we, what we said was this, is that is, is Jesus just your savior or is Jesus your savior king? Uh, many times people talk about Jesus as their savior, but they don't oftentimes talk about him as their king. Savior means that he is, that he is benevolent, that he's gracious and, and things along uh, those lines. And that is certainly true. We'd never deny that. But Jesus, as our Savior, is our King. He becomes our King when he becomes our Savior. And what that means is that he has authority over our lives. He rules and he reigns. And as somebody who has been saved by Jesus Christ... The thing that we must understand is that living under his rule and reign at, with him as our king means something different than perhaps what we have made it out to be. We've made our lives about ourselves. We're about our own kingdom. We're trying to build our kingdom rather than see the kingdom of God flourish. And as I said, it's not our role to build the kingdom. God has established his kingdom through Jesus Christ. As you, uh, you might remember, Jesus comes into his ministry saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's right now. It's here. And then he begins to preach on this in uh, the, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And he begins saying, like, this is what it looks like to be people who are marked by the kingdom. Like, if you're part of the kingdom, then this is, this is who you are. This is what your life is like. And if you live as somebody who is under his rule and his reign, under his kingship, then what's inevitably going to take place is that persecution is going to come to you on some level or another. It may be vast um, persecution uh, through uh, po the politics and, and through our culture. It may be uh, small bits of persecution, which, which are essentially everybody's doing this practice, but I am going to uh, refrain from that practice, whether it has to do with money, sex, or power. And, it, and in a sense, it's a type of persecution. Like, how come you're not doing this? How come you're not making more money? How come you're not, 
what have you. And it's, it's essentially our response has to be like this persecution comes to me rightly because what this means is that I'm living under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And what that means is, is that he as my king. He tells me what to do. It is not the other way around. He is not my genie in a bottle. Don't think about that song right now. He is not the one that is. I loved that song, though. It was so catchy. Um, but don't think about the song. He is not that to us. He is not that, that one. I totally distracted myself. Um, he is, he's not that God that we just say, hey, I'll do, I'll do a couple things that you want or I'll submit to you on one level and say, okay, that you're real and uh, you just give me everything that I want. How many of us live this American Christian lifestyle that's consumeristic? We come to the church as a purveyor of goods and services, and we say, I want you to provide for me, and if you don't provide for me the music, the children's ministry, the, the type of sermons that I want to hear that make me feel good about myself, then I am gone. You're treating the church as though you're a consumer, as, as though that this is some type of um, uh, consumer economics that essentially is saying that um, I will give God stuff as long as he gives me my stuff. He gives me what I Deserve. And so we want to live as Jesus as our king. And what this means is that when we read what Jesus has to say in the Gospels, Jesus comes on the scene and he is introducing to us what it actually means. Okay, let, and it says though Jesus is saying, okay, let me, let me just level with you. Let me just level with you. If, if the Old Testament wasn't clear enough on what I want, if, if, you didn't, if you didn't grasp that, if you don't understand that, let me just level with you and just give you a baseline understanding of what it li- means to live as a subject of this king. This is what it means. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the, uh, the peacemakers. Um, and then today, um, we're out of the Beatitudes, uh, or what they are called the Beatitudes, um, but we're further on into the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I think, let, let me read this in, in, in total here. And then we'll come back to it. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are. I was going to keep reading, but I just have to stop right there. You are. It's not, you might be, you will be. It's, there's there's a, a possibility, but it's, it's, it's saying this, that people who call him king are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's essentially sand at that point. You are, remember what I just said, you are. It's not a question of whether you are or whether you are or you might be or you got to work towards this. But you are, as a subject of the king, the light of the world, a city Uh, set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see what this is saying? It's saying that the idea, it's okay for you to be religious, just keep it to yourself. Is hogwash. Is hogwash. As a subject of the king, you have a responsibility to be a display of your faith. Now, where the uh, 
The problem comes is what does it mean to be a display of your faith? What does it mean to live as a subject under the king who has saved you through the cross? What, is it, what does that mean and what does that look like? Well, there's a, a lot of things that we think that it could look like. I mean, we look at the religious fanatics of our, our day, or so they're called, from Westboro Baptist Church, picketing, uh, picketing uh, soldiers' funerals, the most despicable thing I can even think of. These people are not believers, I can tell you. These people are not believers. They do not know Jesus. They do not know the God of the universe. It's despicable. God hates fags at a soldier's funeral. Why does that even compute to them? What is going on? Like, what, what is happening here? That you, you look at that. You look at, um, I talk to so many people who say, you know, I used to go to church, and I went to this church, and that, and, and that church, they look down on people all the time, and I feel their disdain from me. And even though they're, they, they may be mainstream Christians, the truth is, is that they're really looking down on me for the way that I've lived my life. But in reality, when you look at the lives of people who are mainstream Christians, what you find out is that abortion is sometimes just as prevalent among teens in that, in that because they are uh, held to a standard that is like, man, if, if, if we find out that you've sinned, if we find out that you're actually human and that, that you occasionally have, have issues, in fact, maybe you always have issues, if we find that out, you are out of here. You will be ostracized. That's, that's what's going to happen. That's what happens in our world. If you come out as, as somebody who's, who's a Christian, does it mean that you have to act like those people? Does it mean that you have to picket a soldier's funeral? Is that, is that what that looks like? And so what we do is we opt for just saying, okay, I'm just going gonna to live my faith quietly, and I'm, I'm not going to bring anything to the forefront. I'm not, I'm not going to picket anything. I'm not going uh, um, to look down on people. And in fact, what ends up happening is oftentimes syncretism begins to happen. And syncretism is essentially going along with the crowd. It's like everybody's doing it. You know, everybody's, everybody's uh, engaged in this lifestyle, and so why should I push back on it? Everybody has this going on in their life, and so why should I be somebody who's advocating against those things? And so pretty soon what happens is we end up having worldly Christian people, worldly Christian people who are essentially dislocated from what it really means to live as a, um, a subject of the king. And so what is our role in the world? What is our role in the world? And Jesus is communicating um, that to us. And so let's get into it here. Our first verse there, verse 13, says this, you are the salt of the earth. And so what is, what is salt to Jesus? Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is like this. This is what it looks like. And so as a member of the king, you are the salt of the earth. And if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you may be sick of even hearing this, but uh, salt in their day was a preservative as well as a flavoring, the original flavoring, right? It brings out the taste. But it, first and foremost, it is a preservative. And so uh, if you have meat and you don't have a refrigerator, which I'm pretty sure that they didn't at that point, uh, what they did is that they would just rub an enormous amount of salt into that. And so it is preserving something that is susceptible to decay. 
It is preserving something that is susceptible to decay. And so what Jesus is saying in and through this is he's saying that there is something that is susceptible to decay, and that is our world. Now, this is antithetical to what our world believes about itself. Our world oftentimes believes that we can make things better, that we can, that we can overcome all of these odds, and we can become this incredible city, and we can do it on our own. We can become people who are, uh, are, are current and who are respectful of all people groups and, and things of that nature. We can do all of this on our own. And to suggest that somehow our world is subject to decay is, in essence, to bring your religion into the public square and to announce it. And so what we see is we see our, our world pushing back against this, this idea of all man uh, is, is, is a sinner. All of humanity has sinned and continues to sin. And that man left to himself and herself is just on a downward spiral. And so they, they reject this idea. They don't like this idea. But Jesus is saying, our world, I have put you in our world as a, an antiseptic against decay in our world. What that means is that things that are in disagreement with who God is and as a result are very bad for society are things that we have a responsibility in. We have a responsibility toward being a preservative in our society. We have a responsibility to be preserving what's happening. But our world does not want to admit this. Our world wants to say that somehow that, our, that things are not decaying. In fact, historically, people have believed this, uh, that the world is not subject to decay. Tim Keller quotes H.G. Wells, two different quotes here that I think are uh, fantastic. And, and it says this, um, he says at one point, H.G. Uh, Wells that is, uh, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? I mean, this sounds like a graduation speech, right? You can go anywhere, you can do anything. Everything's getting better, our boldest imaginations. That it will achieve unity and peace that it will live the children of our blood and lives will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. I mean, this is incredible. Like, we can create heaven on earth. Humanity is getting better. It's going to be fantastic. There's incredible reason for optimism. It's fantastic. Just 20 years later, Tim Keller says, uh, he, the same man, wrote this. Homo sapiens, that is humanity, as he is pleased to call himself, is played out. His depravity has come near to breaking my spirit. Oh my goodness. What a, what a massive failure when you come to the point where you say, at one point, like, Life is fantastic, and there are no limits to where you can go. You can achieve everything that you could ever want. You can go anywhere. Humanity's just going to get better. And then to come to the end and just say, this is absolutely depraved. This is absolutely depraved. I don't know if you uh, remember this uh, news story. It just came out again, this CEO who had purchased this uh, drug for AIDS. I cannot remember his name at the, off the top of my head right now, but uh, he had purchased this drug or the rights to it and immediately increased it by, I want to say like 
700%, increased the price. And it went from $20 to thousands of dollars overnight. And people were crying out. And the guy, the guy is, a, is a horrific human being. To, to, I mean, it is... I mean, it's almost like a movie. Like, when you watch a movie and you see this incredibly evil figure, you just go, man, like, do people really exist like this? And then you see this guy who is taking life-saving medicine from people and just basically saying, I am putting the dollar at the top of my list. I don't care if you die. I don't care if you can't afford this. And then you see his interviews, and it is, it's horrific. This guy is an awful, awful human being who really needs Jesus. But nonetheless, when you see those things, when you see these types of people, when you see them and you just go, you lose faith in humanity. When you see what's happened over the last election cycle and you see the fights and the brawls that have broken out over various things, and I'm talking about on both sides. The, the, uh, the liberals are, are rioting and the conservatives are rioting and, and there's, just, there's horrific things that are going on. And some people have even said, like, the, the things that are being said in this election cycle have never been said before in public. People are just saying things like this. And I'm not coming out one way or the other, uh, conservative or liberal. I'm just talking about the decency of humanity. How can we believe that our world is not in the midst of decay, when you look at what's happened, H.G. Wells saw it. You and I see it. Our world is susceptible to decay. And Jesus says that as a member of his kingdom, your responsibility and my responsibility is to be people who come and are a preservative. We are a preservative in our society. And so how are we preserving things. We'll get to that in just a minute, but um, Jesus says we are a preservative. The second thing is that, but if salt has lost its taste, I mean, if, if the, the value in salt is, is how it tastes, and as a result of that taste and the chemical composition of those molecules, as a result of that, that it, it, it makes it a preservative, but it also brings this tang to life. It brings this lifestyle. It, it brings this, uh, this communicative um, lifestyle, these relationships that bring about a tang in life. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, if you're somebody who's a believer and, and you see somebody, it might be on a plane or some uh, interesting place, a restaurant, something like that, a server who's serving you and you say to yourself, I'll bet you that person is a Christian. I'll bet you that person is a Christian. I can, I can almost guarantee it they're, they're a believer. I mean, I've had that happen to me before. You feel something. They didn't preach a sermon at me. They didn't have a sign that says God hates facts. They didn't have anything like that. None of the telltale signs today of religious people. And so, but somehow I knew that there was a kindness about this person. They were gentle. They were, they were exemplifying the Beatitudes, which is the first part of Matthew chapter 5, if you didn't know that. They were meek. They were kind, they were gentle, they were making peace, those types of things. You, you could see this. Christians are supposed to be people who are of the king. We live under the rule and reign of God. And what our role is, is to be salt in our world, not salt in the wound, but salt in our world that comes and brings about a tang to life. But too often we become people who are salt in the wounds. People are wounded and they're walking around and, they're, and they understand, they even know, they feel the decay in their life. 
They feel how they, they are decaying and they have, they have brought about great distress on their family. They've destroyed their life through addiction or through adultery or just through not living rightly. And they feel this and Christians come along and just throw salt in the wound. But that's not what this means. What this means is this, is that this salt, this tang to life says, you are different. There must be something that is different about you. Why? Because Jesus is your king. He sacrificed himself. He bled out on a cross. And he gave up everything for your sake. And so what that means is that that is life changing. Jesus says that if you are somebody who has really received what I have for you as king, under my rule and my reign, your life will look like this. You are, you are the salt of the earth. You are somebody who brings about a tang to life. And what it means is this, is that in your interactions in life, you come in and what you do is you bring peace in the midst of a, a bunch of fighting um, uh, workmates. You bring peace in the midst of that. Instead of gossiping and allowing that to keep rolling and trying to get people fired and suing your, uh, you know, your employer, you come in and you bring about peace. You bring about kindness. And people look at you and they say, like, this guy or this gal is, they, they are, they're so honest and they're so kind. And when they come in, all of the folks in this uh, office who used to not get along or who used to not talk or spend time together or whatever, this person is creating a relationship. And now people can't wait to get to work because this person who's a Christian comes and they throw the greatest parties. And they have the, the, the greatest amount of fun. And they are the kindest people. And, and, and they even extend prayer. And I don't believe in prayer, but I, I do, but maybe they're saying this. I don't believe in prayer, but somehow that's comforting, right? It, like the salt of the earth says this, like I'm preserving relationships. I'm preserving this business. When I come into work, my goal is not to get to the top of the ladder. That may happen, and I would rejoice in that for you. You should rejoice in that. You should give glory to God and just say, God, thank you so much for the opportunities that you've given me. But your goal cannot be that to get to the top of the ladder. Your goal cannot be happiness for happiness' sake. Your goal must be God's kingdom. Seek first his kingdom, and then all these things will be added unto you, he says later on in his sermon here. Seeking first his kingdom and saying, what does the rule and reign of God look like in my life right now? What does it look like in my life? What, what should it be? What should it act like? What, what, what does God want from me? What is, what is God revealing in and through me? I love this so much. I love this so much because... This brings a new perspective to people. And when you don't have a perspective of the kingdom of God, if you don't have a theology of that, or your theology is wacky, like you're, you're off in la-la land saying, you know what, I'm, it's, it's my job to build it. It's my job to make it happen. It's, it's my job. We're, we're going to usher in the kingdom of God. It's up to me. No, what is happening here is this, is that you are the salt of the earth. And something else about this. And that is that salt, a grain of salt, does not operate by itself. 
One grain of salt is not going to work for my flank stick. I can just tell you this. Like, if you've ever had my flank stick, it's not just one grain of salt. Like, it takes multiple grains of salt. And so what that means is that the salt is connected to a whole salt shaker, if you will, the church. It's a part, this is the, that, is a hor- that is a dumb example, but, <laughs> but it's all I had at the moment, and you're left with it. So, you... <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah. It's, it's being a part of a community of people. It's, it, it, it is a supportive group of, group of people who are working toward building a, a, uh, a community that says we want to affect our city and be salt in, in the midst of this world. So we're a preservative. We are a taste that brings... Uh, something new to life. And as a result, we get to see the results of that. And then what, what he says next is this. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Both uh, salt and light have to do with decay on some level or another. You know, what we've talked about is, is how uh, darkness comes into the world in the garden through, through Satan saying, no, you can be like God knowing good and evil if you would just eat the one fruit that God told you not to eat. And that's essentially saying, I want to be king. I want to be in charge. What happens is darkness is, uh, is ushered in. But what ends up taking place is that when Jesus comes into the world, he becomes the light of the world. And what, what it says in Colossians is that he has saved us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're coming out of darkness, we're coming into light. So what does this mean? When you are the light of the world, you are exposing darkness for what it truly is. And don't be mistaken, that will bring persecution, Because our world still believes the lie. You can be like God. You can have control over your life. You can have control over your circumstances. You can lead your life, and you can do just fine with that. But what this is saying is it's saying you have a role as a citizen of the king to expose darkness for what it truly is. And look at what he says. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We're we're talking about a massive space. It's all of humanity. You are the light of the world. You're the singular light through the church, through Jesus Christ. You are the light. Your responsibility is to expose darkness for what it truly is. Now again... What's the misunderstanding that we said about uh, Christianity? Many people who are conservative believe that it, it, that it is their role to go and throw salt on the wounds of people and to begin to drum things up and to expose this and expose that and to do that with a hateful spirit. To do that with a hateful spirit. But what this is saying is this, is that you are the light of the world, you're supposed to do this in the attitude that comes from the Beatitudes. You're supposed to do this with an incredible kindness, an incredible gentleness. You're supposed to do this in the way that Jesus did. When you take on the life of Jesus Christ and you see his interaction with the woman at the well, as the story is commonly called, 
and he speaks to her gently, and he exposes the reality that, yes, you've had five husbands, and the guy that you're with right now is not your husband. And has that really filled you up? Have you really gotten the water that you want in life, the spiritual water, has that really fulfilled you? And she's like, oh my goodness, I guess you really know who I am. But Jesus, in his kindness, does not stand on a pedestal and say, you sinner, how dare you go against God and his rules and his regulations? Don't you know that God hates fill in the blank? Divorcees? Fags? Adulterers? Don't you know? No, Jesus says that if you knew who provides living water, you would have come to me, and I would have given you this water that lasts forever. Jesus says, all of that sin is just exposing the decay in the world. It's just exposing that, that your life is not working for it, and you, so you're finally seeing the darkness. But don't you know that Jesus is the one who can bring light into your life. He can overcome the darkness in your life. He can overcome all of that stuff. The, the, perhaps the divorce, the adultery, the, the, the sexual desires. He can overcome the addictions. He can overcome everything in your life, and he shines a light into your life. What this is saying is it's saying, take on the life of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. As you know, Jesus in uh, John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Don't you want the light of life? Don't you want that? Jesus provides it. We have the answer. You are the light of the world. You get to expose that gently and kindly, but you get to advocate. You get to preserve our world against decay as a result. This is a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Look at regionally speaking. We're talking about the world. Now we're talking about a city, this shining city on a hill. Like, like this. You can't stifle it. Like when you have Jesus, when you have the light of the world, who is Jesus, when you have his light in you, you cannot stifle it. It just happens to you. What's that saying? It's saying this. It's saying that the efforts, I got to build God's kingdom, I got to make this happen or whatever. No, it's not a light that's emanating from who you are and being a good person and acting kind of in this and that and the other thing. It's not a source that you derive. The source of that light comes only from Jesus Christ. It only comes from him. You're a lamp. You're a lamp. And Jesus is your light. Not only is he giving you light for your life, but he is giving you light for your life to express that to the world, to expose the darkness, to say the, the way to human flourishing is not through sexual promiscuity and doing whatever you want, but it is an in acting in line with the way that God created you. And to believe otherwise is just to believe the deceiver. He's deceiving you. Who cares that all of culture says, well, we all agree that this is okay. No, who cares that culture thinks that? You should hook up. You should take a car on a test drive before you marry, right? I'm not sure that women like being called a, a, a test-driven car either, by the way. 
But our world says that that's the way that you should go about it. You should have sex before marriage. And what we say is this, is that marriage is the confines of where sex should take place. Marriage is the only place that that can, that that can happen. Why? Because God designed you, and especially women, to be in secure relationships so that, so that within the midst of an incredible marriage where there's mutual respect and love and even submission and headship, when that's done correctly, when you see headship being the leadership of the male in a relationship, when you see real leadership, Jesus' leadership, which is serving his wife, not domineering over her, when you see submission not as servitude or, or subjugation, but when you see it as, I get to serve my husband because, he, uh, because he's created in the image of God and God has given to him to me as, as my husband, and maybe things don't go the way that I want them to all the time, but again, to serve him, and, and the husband says, I get to serve her in leading well and, and in asking for forgiveness when I screw it up, which, guys, you should do all the time. You should constantly be apologizing at, at different times. I know you guys. You should be apologizing. I know that about myself. I, I, I need to continually. When we are operating within the way that God designed marriage and sex, when we're operating within those uh, parameters. What happens is human flourishing. I just read an article about this in the Atlantic just recently. They were criticizing some uh, Christians, but they were also talking about like the message is clear that if you want to have great sex in a marriage, you should be a Christian because it provides. It provides on some love. And some of you may be sitting here like, my marriage doesn't. Well, we should talk maybe. done rightly as you grow, as you flourish, when maturity takes place, spiritual maturity, I just want to tell you, when you're operating with, within the parameters that God has set up for his kingdom, as darkness leaves your life and light comes in, there is incredible sexual experience in the midst of that relationship with your spouse and with God. It's incredible. For some of you, you're you're, you're single right now, and you're just like, hey, thanks a lot, right? <laughs> and I'm sorry. It's really great. So, um, But Jesus is still yet better than that relationship, so that even in the midst of, of your marriage or your lack of marriage right now, Jesus is still better as a, as a citizen of the king who's ruling and reigning over your life. Like somehow God wants to say to you, like even in the midst of, of, of that loss of marriage, even in the midst of that, that absence of marriage, even in the midst of that absence of, of, of great sexual experience in your marriage, Jesus is better. That's what it looks like to be a citizen of the king. Say, like, God, you have allowed this difficulty to come into my life so that I can pour my life into you and that I can long for you to pour your life into me more so that I can become more like Jesus. So, so people who are a part of the kingdom of God with Jesus as their savior, not only are they uh, bringing salt to the earth, they're preserving and they're showing uh, darkness for what it truly is by living their lives 
in an, in an amazing way. One more thing about marriage. When you go into the public square and into your friends and, and, and what, what have you, when you go into your marriage and you have a God-honoring marriage and when things are clicking uh, in, in the best way possible, you get to say, like, my life is so fulfilling. My life is so fulfilling. And the areas where where there is lack, Jesus fulfills that too. And so my life is fulfilling. I get to go into the public square and say, my marriage is fantastic and I don't want another one. I don't want or need another wife to make me happy. I don't want or need anything else because Jesus has provided. Do you know how countercultural that is? Our culture says, Constantly, like the quest for more, the quest for something else, the quest for something new, the quest for something younger, the, the quest for something richer, the quest for something, we're less arguing, the quest for something that makes me happy because my happiness is of the utmost importance. Our culture says, never be happy, you'll never be satisfied, just keep searching, keep searching, do what's good for you. And do you know what it does? It tears down our society through father, fatherlessness, through the, 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 down, uh, the downturn of, of everything that's going on in our lives. I mean, it's, it's incredible. We get to come to the world and, and bring about a great light and to shine in the midst of this. It reminds me of Philippians 2, uh, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Ah, oh, man. Your life could shine. Your life could shine. You could bring salt and flavor and life and preserving uh, into the midst of your relationships. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus does not shy away from good works, but somehow we as Christians, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, somehow we've distorted this and say, ah, we can't talk about works. No, Jesus says, your salvation is for your good works. It's, it's, it, it's, it's not payment for your good works. It is so that you can go and do good works. It, there, it is unequivocal. Like we could go through scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture and talk about that. Like good works are a necessary part of your life. You, you fail to do good works. God isn't walking away from you. What it means is this, act as the citizen of the king that you are. Begin to act it as who you are. Become who you already are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now it's about revealing that salt and that light that's coming through you through Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we, how do, we do this? I have been really struck by the, the life of William Wilberforce. Um, I've been listening to a, a preacher by the name of John Tyson. I've just loved some of his stuff on... Um, on just uh, uh, living out the kingdom of God and so forth. And so he's kind of brought some of these things uh, to my mind. But he really uh, talks about William Wilberforce, and as a result, I uh, started reading uh, William Wilberforce's, or not his book, but a book about him from Eric Metaxas. 
And um, if you don't know who William Wilberforce is, but he is the guy who led the campaign to end the British slave trade for 20 years until the passage of the Slave Trade Act of 1807. And then ultimately, he led the campaign as well to the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. Like this guy did something amazing. Now think about this for a moment. Our world prior to William Wilberforce was deeply entrenched in slavery. It had always been a part of society. It had always been a part of society. The economic system of our world was built on slavery. The economic, I mean, think about this. Everything, business, industry, all things are built on enslaving people. Can you imagine changing something on, of that magnitude in our world today? Can you imagine saying, you know what? We're just gonna do without banks. Like, like banks are evil, let's get rid of banks. Like, like, can you even imagine that? Like getting rid of a bank, something, something so integral to uh, our economy and to our world's economy. But this is what William Wilberforce took on. He took this on to say, like, this is wrong. Now, read what Eric Metaxas says about this. He said, or, or listen, I should say. Wilberforce overturned not just European civil, civilization's view of slavery, but its view of almost everything in the human sphere. And that is why it's nearly impossible to do justice to the enormity of his accomplishment. It was nothing less than a fundamental and important shift in human consciousness. In typically humble fashion, Wilberforce would have been the first to insist that he had little to do with any of it. The facts are that in 1785, at age 26, and at the height of his political career, something profound and dramatic happened to him. He might say that, almost against his will, God opened his eyes and showed him another world. Somehow, Wilberforce saw God's reality, what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this. This is so cool. He saw things he had never seen before, things that we quite take for granted today, but that were as foreign to his world as slavery is to ours. He saw things that existed in God's reality, but that in human reality were nowhere in evidence. Think about this. Shining light. He's saying, in God's reality says this. God's light is this, but I see darkness. He sees God's reality, and he says, God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign looks like this. He saw the idea that all men and women were created equal by God in his image and therefore sacred. He saw the idea that all men are brothers and that we are all uh, our brother's keeper. He saw the idea that one must love one's neighbor as oneself and that we must do unto others as we would have them do unto us. These ideas are at the heart of the Christian gospel. And they had been around for at least 18 centuries by the time William Wilberforce encountered them. Monks and missionaries knew of these ideas and lived them out in their limited spheres, but no entire society had ever taken these ideas to heart as a society in the way that Britain would. That was what William Force changed forever. As a political figure, he was uniquely positioned to link these ideas to society itself, to the public sphere, and the public... To the, to the public sphere, and the public sphere, for the first time in history, was able to receive them. And so Wilberforce may perhaps uh, 
be said to have performed the wedding ceremony between faith and culture. Like when you, when you, th- you hear a description of somebody's life like that, and you think about for a second the atrocities that happened in slavery. Like, it, like the, the hatred that grows in my heart when, when I watch a film about slavery and they really depict what has taken place, the hatred, the, the utter just like revulsion that happens in my life when I hear about a man's wife being taken and done with whatever they want. When I hear about the, the, the hatred, the awful things that took place, when you look at our world and say humanity, all of humanity for the most part, was in on this. All of them. And guess what? That's in all of us as well. That propensity to overlook and to say, ah, it's always been done this way. We've always killed our kids if we didn't want them. We've always just submitted to our sexual desires, whether that meant I leave my marriage of how many years and I go and and have this relationship. We've always submitted to these things. Do you see what Wilberforce was doing with the propulsion that comes from God's kingdom and how he saw this and he says, this is not of God. And he looks at, I believe, at what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 5, and he believes what Jesus says. Not only does he believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, but he believes the gospel in regards to the life of Jesus Christ. I know the screens are blue right now. Just watch me, all right? Not only does he believe that he's saved, but he believes that that salvation leads him to a life that says, I see the economic system of the world, and I am setting out to change it. It took him 20 years. What do you do for 20 years? You build an investment portfolio and hope at the end that you have enough money to retire on. What do you do for 20 years? You, you, you work, you have kids, you, you, you do whatever. You, you work for yourself, you do all, all kinds of things. But who takes 20 years to fight something that the entire world's economic system is on it? I'll tell you who. Jesus Christ. Jesus. And the people that are saved by Jesus... The people that look at Jesus on the cross and they say, this guy bled. This guy bled out. And, and I believe in the supernatural, and, and so I, I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. The Word is Jesus. Like, so here's God in the flesh, God the Son. And instead of building his portfolio and instead of serving himself, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so who takes 20 years? 
Apparently, Jesus took 33 years. And Jesus lives this incredible, incredible life. And here's the problem with William Wilberforce. You can look at, you can look at that and say, be like William. No, you, you can't look at William Wilberforce. You have to look at the, the source of the light that came from William Wilberforce. The source of the light that was in him is Jesus Christ. His source is Jesus. But you know what happened in his life? He exposed the darkness in the world. In the world. The world was forever changed. The slave trade was decimated. The world changed. It's not even completely gone yet, even today. But to a massive degree, our world is without slavery for the most part because of this guy's belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that he is the light of the world, and as a result, he must be salt. He's preserving our world. He's saying, I live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. He is my king. There is no other. And so I come into the world, and, and this is the way that I display that. I can call sin, sin. I'm doing that with gentleness and respect. I'm revealing the darkness in our world. The mass murder, the genocide that's going on among African Americans today through abortion. We're not just going to pick that up because we're Christians. We're going to pick it up because it's murder. And, and, and some of you have even experienced it. You've been a part of it. You've advocated for it. And do you know what you need? You need the light of Jesus Christ because he forgives you. He bled out for that sin. But you know what you get to be? You get to be a tireless advocate that comes and preserves other lives that are wiped out off the face of the earth. So as a Christian, it's okay to say, I'm not necessarily a fundamentalist. You can call me that all day. I'm going to act in line with who Jesus Christ is. I'm going to apologize and ask for forgiveness when I don't because it will happen. But I am going to shed a light, not just on the, the idea of human trafficking or sex slavery today, but I'm going to shed a light on the fact that children should not be killed in their mother's womb. I'm going to shed a light on how my workplace should be. I'm going to shed a light through the way that my family lives, and I am going to show light into the midst of darkness. God will be glorified as a result of these good works, and you will be acting in line with who you already are, with Jesus Christ as your Savior, and as a result, as your King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, my, my heart is, I'm honestly just thinking about um, people in here who have deep what they feel like are, are deep sins. I've mentioned some things this morning that, and, and I'll bet you it feels like salt in the wound. Lord Jesus, I, I, wanna, I wanna ask for your, your sense of, of grace and mercy that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would, that you would just hug them and love them 
Or perhaps they've never been in a place where they've just acknowledged the decay in their own life. Somebody who's a Christian is, is somebody who's come to a point that says that I'm, I'm rotting from the inside out. My own desires, it's not everyone else's problem, it's my problem. Like in everybody who, who has submitted to Jesus Christ has submitted to that. They've said, I have a need. I have a, I, I, I have a spiritual issue. I cannot overcome on my own. I need Jesus. I need Jesus' uh, substitutionary death. He had to take my place on the cross. I deserved it, and he took it. But more than that, he went to the grave, and he was risen uh, from the grave so that I can also be resurrected right here and right now in my life, spiritually speaking. I can be resurrected from the ashes of the, of the life that I've made of the decay and the darkness that I've uh, allowed to persist in, in, in my life and in my world and in my workplace and my family. God, allow them to see that this, that this realization of sin and darkness in their life is good, but that you bring healing and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you took the condemnation on the cross. They, it doesn't belong to them. You took it. And so they get to walk in newness of life. So, Lord, I pray for them this morning, Lord, that if they have not received you as Savior, that today would be the day that they would sense their guilt, the awful sense of that, that all of us must continue to do and revel in your salvation. That, Lord, that they would sense that and, Lord, begin to walk in this newness of life, that you are the Savior, that you are the King, that they would walk in submission to you. Lord, God, I ask you for this in in your great name we pray, amen. The, the Lord's table is for uh, uh, re reveling in the gospel in its fullness. Jesus went to the cross. He died. He, he bled. Think on that. Think about what he did for 33 years. Think about his suffering for you. Think about what, what, what he's done. Ask for forgiveness. Examine your own life and say, Lord, here's, here's the ways that I just, I'm not living with you as king right now. And understand that he went to the cross for that sin. But he wants to see you change. And he'll do that in your life. Let's, let's revel in that together.